2: Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the aftermath of the death of Sir David Amos MP. And you ask us, what can we learn from the early years of new Labour? so we 're speaking just under a week after Sir David Amos the conservative m p who 'd served in Parliament since one thousand nine hundred and eighty three was killed in his constituency while holding a constituency surgery in a church in South End. Stephen, both you and I have written about this and what implications it has for m p s but should we just talk a little bit about what the mood has been like since this horrible event for me? It seems um, like a very bleak sense of deja vu from the arguments and the reflections that came after Joe Cox was killed in 2016.
1: The mood in Westminster is obviously understandably very sombre for kind of two reasons. The first is that it feels very familiar to lots of the conversations after the murder of, of Joe Cox, not least because although this is not the most frequent, the rate put it that grimly, is not, is, you know, is was is wars worse in the early 80s. I, I think, you know, one, there's a kind of core, core difference, at least in the minds of a lot of MPs, I think, than it's one thing, it's it's two attacks on MPs when they've been in their constituencies doing a kind of core part of the job in a kind of very immediate way. Whereas, you know, Erie Neave the Reverend Simon Bradford, Anthony Berry, those were all bombs and kind of, you know, they were at a Distance, as it were, which I think changes the kind of slight feeling about it. But also, particularly in the Conservative Party, you know, although it's fair to say that both David Amos and James Brokenshire, who died of, of of lung cancer last week, were well liked across the House because you know they were they took great time to be to be you know courteous to be yeah. You know, particularly, one of the things people in opposition will always be very grateful for is a surprising number of ministers are sort of actively, basically, like I'm sorry, are you? Is it in my party's interest to be at all helpful to your constituents' queries? And they'll do it eventually, but it's like often feels like pulling tax. And one of the things people yeah, really liked about James Brickhamshire he would always take the time to be very helpful to people regardless of their party. Ditto, although, you know, David Amherst was of course a long-term committed Brexiteer, Thatcherite dry, someone who, you know, would really felt he would both take the time to help uh, new MPs out, but also, you know, to listen and listen to his constituents' concern, to join APPGs, Yeah, just seen as a very kind and courteous person. But I think particularly within the Conservative Party it, the loss of two very well-liked MPs so close to each other is really Really, I think sent a sort of shockwave through the party, and then across the house. One of the things, and it really brings home to people. Is, yeah, I was talking to someone saying, well, it, it's having to explain to my kids, who their kids are quite young, the sort of, oh well, you know, is dad in danger? And just having like, well, yes, actually, and people having to go through all of that kind of thing. You know, I talked to another MP who, you know, their their child is an adult basically, and them saying, oh, you know, this thing where they said. He called to check up on me, and I just thought, oh, you never called to check up on me, and I just, I shouldn't be putting you through this. While at the same time, of course, most MPs put a huge amount of stock in the idea, you know, that they know what's going on in their patches, and they're active in their communities. I spoke to several MPs who said some variant on, I live five minutes from where I was born, everyone knows me, and everyone knows where I am. There's a limit to how secure I can really be in that situation. And they very much don't want to give that up the kind of too violent terror threats, which I get to a bit in in the column, aren't going away. And so I think there's been a kind of real sort of mood of, well, how do you deal with that? Which I then has slightly, and I imagine we'll get onto this a bit as well, metastasized into this strange slash not actually all that relevant. But I think that's partly because lots of MPs are, yeah, people forget because the... The prominent ones on TV and the ones who get to go on politics live will tend to be quite young. I think people forget that the average MP is actually quite old and does therefore go. Oh, the radicalization happens like on the online, and the online is where like a bunch of people sort of will anonymously send unpleasant messages to me or like aggressive emails, and therefore they're the same. Yeah, in the mind uh, for yeah understandable reasons. In the same way that podcast listeners, yeah, obviously many of our podcast listeners are of all ages. You're a podcast listener. You're quite you're fairly techie. We'll have like friends who will simply like oh on the online. So I think that's kind of been the mood. But yeah, you wrote about the kind of broader sort of what has and hasn't changed in the last um, five years. Yeah, the five years that we've seen these two MPs being killed.
2: Yeah, I think and and I think the online argument is part of that. I understand that the arguments for making banning people's anonymity on social media accounts wouldn't stop attacks happening. Not least because some of the nastiest things that happen to MPs in their constituencies or online day to day are by people who are you know are doing it under their own name and and unknown to them i remember one mp who didn't want to talk about it publicly telling me that their car's tyres had been slashed by someone who sent their child to the same primary school as that mp so this is how well-known mp's tormentors are to them usually so the anonymity argument is a little bit of a red herring but i do understand the frustration because it stems from this wider feeling among many mp's that the the way that politics is carried out and spoken about and the discourse is has got nastier, less compassionate over the years, particularly since Brexit. And I understand that this argument is a controversial one because people say that we have an adversarial political system and people should be able to oppose each other in robust ways. But I do think, and I'm sure you've picked this up too, Stephen, that there is a sense that there's a, a loss of kindness in Parliament that used to be there, which is remembered by perhaps some of the older intakes. Sir so David Amos's generation in particular, one MP was talking about this to me with the example of what happened to Matt Hancock when he had to stand down after his scandal. You know, he remembered that they, when things like that used to happen back in the day, MPs were kinder about it, whereas he noticed a sort of crueler attitude towards stories like this among some of his colleagues this time round. So it's not just people on social media taking pot shots. It's also the atmosphere created by language used by politicians themselves and also in the media as well. And we know there's so many examples of that that I've written about before. Enemies of the people is a famous one. But then there's also off the cuff statements that people have made that have had horrible echoes in real life. And Nigel Farage talking about taking a knife to the pen pushers in Whitehall, for example. So there's all sorts of examples that you can take from either side, which suggest that the language used uh, in our politics is getting nastier, it does mean that using that kind of language is fair game for the public, or at least is perceived as fair game for the public. So that's, I think, a a frustration, a legitimate frustration about MPs as something that hasn't been tackled since what happened to Joe Cox. Secondly, on the more sort of day-to-day security, that as well, I think, is a frustration on the part of people like Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House, who has been talking about the security measures that have been on offer to MPs since Joe Cox's murder, that are still on offer but haven't been taken up by every MP because it's up to them. It's their decision how protected or how they want to carry out their constituency surgeries. So after Joe Cox, they were given CCTV at their houses, panic buttons, panic alarms that they could carry around with them. And there There was all sorts of advice about making sure that you book constituents in by appointment so that you can vet them and actually... David Amos wrote in his very recent book that he felt that had somewhat spoilt the great British tradition of meeting your constituents on a equal face to face level without them having to go through checks or having to feel like you don't trust them. And so this is the tension, I think. And some MPs, Lisa Nandy said it feel that they'll never actually really be safe while they're carrying out their constituency work. Because like you put it, Stephen, they're going to the supermarket and their constituency people know who they are. You know, often yeah. everyone knows them and they're, they're local. And between those other MPs who feel that it is it is too dangerous to carry on how it is, I think Diane Abbott said after what happened to David Amos that she would feel more comfortable being behind a plastic screen. And of course, Diane Abbott has had a lot more abuse than any other MP. But even those MPs that I've spoken to who don't routinely get abuse, which is usually straight white male MPs, have been shaken by this. And so those security measures that Lindsay Hoyle has been concerned that MPs aren't taking up, I think are going to become more and more of an urgent issue.
1: Yeah, I think. Although I think actually to, to slightly defend MPs for not taking up, part of the issues, is a lot of the, the suggestions are simply not practicable. They're not practical if you're in a marginal seat for one reason and they're not practical if you're in a yeah. safe seat for another. So, for example, I was talking to someone and they were talking to this. So, yeah, the guidance is, you know, said, when you go somewhere, arrive late and leave early. And they were just like, oh, great, well, my association's going to love that, aren't they? Yeah, yeah like, oh, oh, fantastic. When the MP comes down to this, this, you know, Leafy, to use that cliche about Libcon marginals, we love to use. When the MP comes down to their leafy safe seat from London, they arrive early, say arrive late and leave early. They were just like, they were just like it's, like, it's like, great. They're like, great, I can protect myself by boarding a fast train aboard the Deselection Express. And equally, if you're in a marginal seat, right, Oh, the MP always arrives late and leaves early is is not a great look with your voters. And I think one of the things which has happened is that yeah, in the last week is, is as you say partly about MPs going okay. If we're talking about the things which make it difficult for us to do our jobs, why don't we talk about all of them? But I think the sort of elephant in the room, always in these conversations. Is money, right? What is the practical sort of thing, which yes, you wouldn't be able to eliminate a lot of the dangers, but what is the thing that you could what are the things you could do to make MPs safer? Firstly, you can you could do the robust anti terror stuff that we know works, which is broadly, most violent extremists kind of progress up the crime pipeline, right? They go to prison for a fairly minor offence or they're involved in piracy or yeah of, of videos not of ships um, yeah like they they yeah or they're doing other serious crimes that we're very bad at successfully catching like domestic violence and then they become a violent extremist so if you have better resourcing for in community policing better resourcing for the justice system you're fix, fixing that problem but also although the you know like the advice is like, arrive late leave early get all of the addresses of your constituents like for yeah, two weeks in advance so they can be vetted where it's just okay like you can do that a bit but it's also fairly easy for people to game if they really want to ultimately what is the most practical yeah the most practical thing that allows MPs to continue to do their jobs and have a you know a, a greater measure of safety you can pay for greater security at constituency surgeries, and you can pay for MPs to have permanent premises. But of course, that goes against the thing, and both political parties have been fully, fully complicit in this. That goes into this kind of thing where we basically pretend that the best politics is cheap politics, yeah, in which we lump in like staff costs with expenses claims, in which we essentially almost fetishise the idea that like the best MP's office is one in which you have like some amateurist fifty-something who's having to like do legislative scrutiny, like with the aid of 122 year old if they're lucky. And, yeah, and I think it is true to say that... that yeah, and obviously I'm not saying that I don't think... Yeah, we in the media are also a key node in this, and then, of course, the, the wider public does play a, a role too, but I do think it basically is in order, you know... Us in the media need to get better at writing about, like, the arguments for, like, actually, they should have bigger staffs. But MPs have been very quick to move from on the one day we should behave better to on the other day going, oh, well, so-and-so, like, you expensed a really good laptop. yeah you know, my, my laptop is a £200 Windows one. You know, serving my constituents by taking 15 minutes to send one email because my laptop is old and slow. Then a lot of this does come back to the fact that we as a political class have to get better about talking about the value of effective politics and the value of effective MPs and indeed you know, the value of judicial restraint you know, the enemies of people stuff like you are know, like it's actually it's a good thing for liberal democracies if like judges occasionally go no you need to think again yeah you know, all of that stuff about the culture of politics i think does also need to take nap the assassination of joe cox and the attacks on parliament in 2017 18 were like you know by jihadists and a an neo nazi terrorist and broadly right the jihadism and the far right continue to be the the violent terrorist threat in the united kingdom and that is unlikely to change you can't practically tackle uh, anonymity on social media even if even if you park the, lib- lib- the liberal arguments about whether or that might be innately undesirable, you can't do it anyway. But you can, I think, at the margin, make MPs' lives better and safer and easier and also get a better quality of politics. I feel like it's crazy that we spend so much time talking about MPs' salary and very time, little time talking about like, their pay, conditions, security, structure of their offices, a bunch of things that we could do tomorrow for comparatively small amounts of money in terms of public spending that would have huge transformative implications, I think, like across how politics was done.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that should be more of a focus. You're right, the two sort of debates that often get sparked are about the level of MPs' pay and about HR for MPs' staff when there's some kind of scandal about bullying or sexual harassment. And neither of those things seem to touch the wider implication, which is the same issue, which is how how well-resourced their actual offices are. But I'd add to that as well, maybe this is a bit of a dull point, but I also think as a media... As a media sort of class, we should probably put more emphasis on what MPs actually do day to day as well. Because often, you know, when there's attacks like the one last week, you suddenly get everyone saying this is the great British tradition of being able to meet your constituents wherever you go. And, you know, I've often followed MPs around their constituencies and gone to surgeries with them and they can be in, you know, I've I've been in one in the pub and they can be anywhere and there is something quite lovely about how on a level they can be with their constituents. But I think there tends to be this sort of this kind of sentiment about it from a media that basically doesn't cover it very much but I do think there is this idea that's the boring stuff that MPs do when they're not in Westminster and we mainly tend to focus on them on what they're doing in Westminster behind um, all of the security that they have in Parliament so I do think we don't
1: even really focus that much on the actual substance no no
2: exactly yeah yeah so I so I I obviously this is not going to prevent any attacks taking place but I think that it would probably allow for more context when we're talking about what MPs need to do their jobs
1: yeah well you know one mp to me um saying they said i know i shouldn't do this they said but every time i've seen a journalist going oh yeah the importance of caseworks i said the urge to just search whether or not they've been like mps are going off on their holidays in the summer yeah and they were just like and they just said look and they said and i know them, they said i know that i'm partly doing this because i'm upset about david this but i said but i just find it and i think yeah that is i think the kind of important thing for you people obviously lots of our listeners are inside uh, westminster but i think for those of our listeners who, who aren't i think one of the sort of keys to understanding the mood is i think there's very much a kind of feeling of sort of people going this awful thing has happened and they kind of feel like almost okay well now i want to talk about all of the things that make it harder for me to do my job yeah of which yeah i think you're exactly right then we don't do a very good job of writing about what it is they do beyond the bit than it's like exciting theater and it's like you know tom stoppard is exciting theater lads <laughs> like maybe we should cover politics in a slightly different way
2: You may have noticed that we're not speaking about the net zero strategies that were released this week, including the heat and building strategy about how we're going to be expected to heat our houses on the way to net zero in 2050. And that's because we've been doing a special podcast series all about the climate crisis. Coming up in an episode soon, we've spoken to a Norwegian minister about how Norway have introduced heat pumps so successfully. And he had some interesting lessons for the UK.
0: Anyone who's taken the coastal route maybe or visited are aware that we have a lot of rain and we have a lot of hydropower. So for historical reasons, we have had abundant energy and abundant electricity and probably, or I know, at lower prices than you do in the UK. Just to add on a bit of an anecdote, we are having a huge discussion here now because we just opened a new interconnector between Norway and the UK, which most likely will see electricity flow from Norway to the UK. And people here are concerned, are we now going to see UK prices for electricity in Norway? Because that sounds scary because the uh, <laughs> prices are higher. But I would assume then that a high price of electricity, if you're going to use electricity as a direct source for heating, and you need to get there, I understand, if you are to phase out gas and reach your climate targets, then heat pumps sure make sense. And it would be, I suppose, I heard £10,000. That sounded like a lot of money to me. But um, we actually haven't had in Norway, any large scale subsidy program or cash in hand program to, to buy heat pumps. Because coming back again to, to ownership structure, people living in de- detached houses, it's made economical sense for people actually to invest in a heat pump on their own.
2: If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to
1: call You Ask Us.
2: So this is a question from Ben, who writes in saying he's realised that he doesn't know very much about the early years of new Labour. What important lessons can we learn about that period of the Labour Party's history? And he also asks whether we can recommend any good resources. So I imagine that our good friend Ben has been watching the excellent BBC New Labour documentary as we both have Stephen obviously I imagine that you have more of an encyclopedic knowledge of those years of New Labour than many of our listeners do what do you think's coming out of that documentary that sort of the general mainstream memory of that time seems to have forgotten
1: I think there's a couple of things I think are happening I think there's a kind of reappraisal of some of the social legacy of the of that government in part because the more of it and get hacked away the more people are like oh actually I I did quite value this and obviously one of the slightly strange things and really only makes sense in a party whose internal culture is as bad as the Labour Party's, is that of course you've had this kind of weird period in which the supposed inheritors of that government have been very much just like no to win we just need to defend the hacking away of it and then the people who want to repudiate it are just like the new Labour government was awful, the new Labour government was terrible, by the way, we would keep all of its spent, keep and reinstate all of its spending priorities. And it's just like, hmm, no wonder neither of these sides has managed to successfully cobble together an election winning coalition. I think, as well as this excellent documentary, the various Michael Cockerell documentaries, which are mostly all on YouTube, are very good. Andrew Rawnsley's two books, Servants of the People and the other one, are very good deborah mattinson's first book talking to a brick wall which i think is sadly out of print but might still be available on the bite back website but you can mostly find on a books for a pretty reasonable price if you can't get it fresh anymore philip calls the unfinished revolution actually particularly tony blair's forward in terms so the other thing is what do i what do we think the like interesting the important lessons from that period are now In ultimately like the era in the the early era of New Labour, you know, it's 1994, ninety four, let's say 98 phase. But for most of that time, there were only four channels. We shouldn't forget, right, in 1992, a party election broadcast formed like a central part of the argument about the campaign for days. Because there were only four channels, if you put your party political broadcast, a huge number of people would see it. And we've talked about this in the context of Keir Starmer's a Piers Morgan interview, where he came across very well, and but ultimately was watched by had quite good ratings for the modern era but i think it was something like you know 1.2 million 2.1 million you know, something in in terms of moving voters impressions teeny tiny whereas if you did that kind of interview in the in the sort of early new labor era congratulations you've improved your standing among 8 million people so it was a hugely fractioned media landscape very different economic circumstances I mean, you know one of the ways new labor was able to defang kind of the concerns people generally have about the Labour Party respending was to be able to go, we'll match your spending limit, limit, small voice, because fiscal drag and a growing economy will mean we'll be able to spend more anyway. Now, Rishi Sunak may weirdly be about to hand Labour uh, the ability to do that by going, oh, I'm going to use, because he's obviously determined to be able to do tax cuts before the election, which is, OK, that's great if you can deliver that glide path, but if you can't, you are creating quite a lot of problems for yourself. But Rishi Sunak may be about to make that new Labour option available again by going, I'm not going to use these more optimistic growth figures. And that then would probably create about 40, 30 billion of of headroom when the Labour Party could go, well, because we'd make different choices, we would do this, but blah, 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 defanging some of the tax arguments. And it, of course, may also be because Conservatives have broken their manifesto pledge to raise taxes and some of those tax arguments don't defend. defend. But I think the things that that hold true, one, you know, Tony Blair's forward to the... uh, unfinished revolution, including parts of Whitland, I think, interestingly, don't really Yeah, it he, he makes a point about how you win elections. And they just discussed this with reference to Tony Blair's position on where Labour should be on Brexit. I think the you know, kind of the methodological um, truths are the ones which like basically still apply. And those are the ones which you can see applying to David Cameron, again, someone who, yes, a more similar media landscape, one in which iPlayer player existed, but was not the default setting for most people. We, this thing we shouldn't forget: right? the media landscape has changed so much. And the last Labour victory happened in an era like when most people weren't even on freeview. Yeah, in which the daily press conference was like a central part of both parties' campaigns in two thousand and five. So yeah, I think that's my feeling about what the lessons are. But What do you feel like the lessons of that period are?
2: What I found really interesting from the documentary was how much of a sort of iron fist they had on the finances in their first term so gordon brown inherited this title the iron chancellor and the whole idea was to try and prove to a public that had voted by a landslide for them that they that labor could be trusted with their money so it was interesting that they still had to they still felt they had to prove that to the electorate even after they'd been elected for a good few years that has a parallel to today we can see what Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves are trying to do. They're trying to show that they're sort of responsible with with their spending commitments, which, as we've spoken about in previous podcasts, is frustrating for some of the shadow teams because they can't announce the kind of policies that they want to or the spending commitments that they want to. So you can see they're trying to show that they would be the party that could be trusted with people's money, as they were in government in that first term, as depicted in the documentary. And then the the sort of downside of that was that the public started to get impatient. They'd voted for what seemed like this sort of revolution for Britain, but they weren't seeing any changes day to day in their day to day lives, which is when they had to start making those spending commitments for the health service and for education and things like that. Parallel to today, not in terms of the Labour Party, but in terms of the Conservative Party that has promised to level up, is when is that sort of slight suspicion of, have they oversold themselves? Are we going to be betrayed? When that's going to kick in? And what was really interesting is they had William Hague in this programme talking about, you know, I knew that people would start to get disillusioned with new Labour's promises when they started noticing things weren't changing fast enough, but I didn't know how long that would take. And so the question for Keir Starmer's Labour Party is, how long is it going to take for the public to realise that levelling up might not be quite what they expected? It meant for their high street or their town um, because we know now that it's not as linked to infrastructure as we kind of initially thought and how the Labour Party can help the public along towards that realisation. And the challenge, of course, for the government on the other side of that challenge is that is, is trying to make it so that levelling up does have some kind of tangible impact on people's lives before the next election. So those were the two things I've only watched the first three episodes, I think, but those were the two things from the documentary that I thought had really interesting resonances today. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review, and don't forget to subscribe.